Hello and welcome to Planet Money. I'm David Kestenbaum. And I'm Stacey Vanek-Smith. That's perfect. Oh, thank you. Stacey, you're the newest member of our Planet Money team. You came to us from Marketplace. And I'm sorry, I understand you had a window over there. I did. I did. But it's okay because I I actually work better in the dark. We can make it more dark. (laughs) Today on the show, we have three short stories we crafted for the radio wrapped up in a neat little package for your listening pleasure. The Secrets of Jewelry Stores. The problem with World's Fairs. And a law that Abraham Lincoln signed being used today to go after the largest banks in the world. All right, Stacey, first story is one of yours. When I set it up, it's about jewelry stores. Yes, I got really interested in this because I was actually just looking around in some shops in Brooklyn, where I'm from, and I saw a pair of earrings that I liked, but I could not tell how much they cost because the price tag had been turned away. They're always turned down. They're, They're always turned down. turned down. And then I started wondering why they actually do this as I was wrangling around trying to see how much these earrings cost. So I got interested in it and thought I'd check it out. Here's the story. When Tara Silberberg was a little girl, she helped out a lot at her parents' jewelry store in Brooklyn. We used to have to handwrite all those price tags, and oh my God, I had such good handwriting too, just like teeny tiny, like minuscule little uh, handwriting. Not that most customers would see it. Like in most jewelry stores, the price tags at the clay pot were tucked away behind all the gold and silver. Forty years later, Silberberg runs the store, and the price tags work the same way. If you're looking around, you have to guess how much something costs. You basically end up playing a kind of jewelry store version of the price is right. Well, let's see. Let me find something that I really like. Yeah. I spotted a silver necklace that looked affordable. So what what kind of stone is that? Is that a diamond or is that? That's a a white topaz. Okay. So I'm going to guess that that's like 110. Up. Go up. Can you imagine doing this with sweaters at the Gap? This game is not played outside of jewelry stores. But Silberberg says there's a good reason for this. In any jewelry store, there is a huge range of prices. She points to a couple items she has displayed in her shop window. There's so many things in this cabinet that all cost completely different amounts of money. That specific pair of earrings is like $80 and the ones next to them are 2000 Hiding the price tags keeps you from spooking the customers. And I see people, like, they'll just wander right to the back to the very expensive section and see one piece that costs, like, $3,000, and they'll just go, oh, this is crazy. I can't, I can't, and then they'll just walk right out. Without a price tag, if you see something you like, you have to ask about it before you bolt. Which brings us to the second reason jewelry stores like this. Rafi Mohammed is a pricing consultant. They want the opportunity to take the jewelry out of the case and really explain the subjective value to consumers so they'll understand it and pay a premium for it. The subjective value, a.k.a. the story. It's actually the most valuable aspect of a lot of jewelry. Take that topaz necklace, the one that's not $110. Um, 150 That one's 4 Oh, okay. Um, so, and so that's one of the designers, like a Brooklyn designer who I've known forever, Lisa Jenks, who's really an iconic designer, right? You see how easily Silberberg slipped into the story? And the next thing you know, she's comparing the necklace to a car. It's like a Tesla. When you look at that necklace, the, the price Silberberg gave me was four times more than I thought it would be. But before the shock had a chance to set in, I find out the designer is an icon. The quality is exceptional. This isn't a necklace. It's a Tesla. $400 is a really good price to pay for a Tesla. You see, you see, this is what happens without price tags. Suddenly, it's not about a number. It's about emotion. 
Mike Lynn teaches this technique at the Cornell Hotel School. By asking what's the price of this, I've indicated to the salesperson that I'm interested in that item. They turn the price over and then if I reject the item, it looks as though it's too expensive for me, that I'm not as wealthy or generous as I might want to appear. These techniques have worked for jewelry stores forever, but these days people have a lower tolerance for it. I ran into Nancy Kempf at the Clay Pot. She was actually at the store yesterday trying to get some earrings for her daughter-in-law. And the lady for the jewelry store was in the back and I didn't want to bother. I didn't know what the price was and... So I I did leave. I'm back again, and I bought it. (laughs) Owner Tara Silberberg did not like this story. But she's also noticed more customers coming in with Internet pricing research in hand. With pictures on their smartphones, and they've already pre-shopped, and they know exactly what they're looking for. And exactly how much it costs. It's hard for any business these days to profit off of keeping information from customers. And Silberberg knows this. She's about to open a new location in Manhattan, and she's thinking about changing her approach, putting price tags on some of the more moderately priced items in the window, but just in the window. Once customers are in the store, if they want to know a price, they are going to hear the story. Stacey, you know what's similar and sort of drives me crazy? When you go out to a restaurant and they read you the special, and then oh, they, don't yeah. tell you, they don't tell you how much it is, and you're like, is it $5,000? I know when I feel like you can't ask because then it makes you look cheap. I never get the special. A little while ago, you may remember, we did a story looking back 50 years at the 1964 World's Fair, which was right here in New York. I have to say, this is still an impressive sight. I mean, it's beautiful. So I saw an old photo of this, and there was a dude in a jetpack like zooming around in the air above this thing. Like an actual guy in an actual jetpack flying. A real guy. It was like an early prototype or something. The future looked awesome back then. Let us explore together the future. In that story, we looked at how the future looked back then. You know, moon colonies, underwater hotels, and how the future actually came out now that we're living in it. We also asked Steve Henn here to take a look at what a World's Fair today might look like and if anyone would go to it. Here's the story. The 1964 World's Fair was filled with rides, sponsored by corporations. There was the Clarell Carousel, for women only, a round glass building with 40 private booths on a slowly circulating turntable. It was, of course, devoted to hair coloring. Then there was the Moon Dome, with exhibits about life in space, and one ride called Futurama built by GM. It painted a picture of a world where industrial farming took place on the seafloor and imagined a device that some people today would find horrifying, a machine for cutting down the rainforest to build roads. First, a searing ray of light, the laser beam, cuts through the trees. Then a giant machine, a factory on wheels, grinds up the stumps and jungle growth. Paul Sappho, a futurist and Stanford lecturer, says a World's Fair today would have to be different. In 1964, visions of the future were filled with unbridled optimism. If he built a fair, it would be filled with doubt. Nothing new comes into our lives without a hidden curse. Sappho says his fair would be about questions, not building roads through the rainforest. But how do we save it? And philosophical questions, like, are we as a species capable of understanding, untangling how our own minds work? 
Will machines be smarter than us? Or this one, which he thinks we might actually answer in the next 50 years. Are we alone in the universe? Sappho and a bunch of people I talked to said they thought the idea of a World's Fair didn't even really make sense anymore. The last time we had one in the U.S. was 1984. Andrew Bennett went to it. His mom had loved the 1964 World's Fair. But this one didn't have the same effect on him. Not at all. Not at all. (laughs) No. There was nothing there Bennett hadn't seen before. Nothing he hadn't seen on television. And today, he thinks it would be even worse. That sense of discovery his mom got from the 64 World's Fair, it's hard to capture today. What made it so exotic and extraordinary is a mouse click away now. The 84 Fair went bankrupt. In 1992, Chicago tried to host a World's Fair, but it was canceled. Paul Sappho, futurist and Stanford lecturer, says one way to get people to go to a fair today might be to make it a little bit like a real-world version of Wikipedia. Allow anyone to help create it. In the World's Fair today, it would be more like Burning Man. (laughs) Burning Man is an annual festival in the desert each August. For a week, tens of thousands of people construct a massive, living, temporary city. Part art exhibit, part party. It's known for neo-hippies and nakedness. It's free of commerce. Nothing's for sale. But there are these exhibits that paint pictures of the future. There are UFO installations. And a few years ago, artists built a giant dystopian oil derrick. It was 150 feet tall. And at the end of the week, they blew it up. And Andrew Bennett, that kid whose mom fell in love with the World's Fair in 1964, he goes to Burning Man. He says he gets the same jolt from it that his mom got from the fair. He realizes not everyone's up for a week in the desert, but he's begged his mom to come. She doesn't like dust. (laughs) It's too far away. She she doesn't like the heat. She doesn't want to be away from my dad. She's got a million excuses. But for Bennett's mother, the World's Fair, the only one that mattered, happened in New York 50 years ago. Stacey, this last one is one of yours. This one is about the present. It's about these big fines that the U.S. government has been collecting from banks and other companies. It's actually been a record year. One tally puts it at something like $70 billion so far. Yeah, as it turns out, some of this new money is coming in thanks to a really old law, a law that was actually signed by Abraham Lincoln. You looked back into the history of this thing. The government's secret weapon against corporate fraud was developed during the Civil War. It was 1863. The country was torn in half, and the Union Army was desperate for supplies. Mark Greenbaum is an attorney who studies the era. They didn't have uniforms. They didn't have shoes. All of these industries sprouted up on the fly, so they had to rely a lot on contractors to supply the war machine. Private contractors. And wherever there are lucrative government contracts, there are people who see them as an easy way to get rich. There's fraud. Soldiers complained about shoddy uniforms that would dissolve in rain. Gunpowder and cannons and guns wouldn't fire, and a lot of it was mixed with sawdust. They would get horses that were uh, withered, that were weak, and even in some cases blind. Soldiers started writing letters home about the shoddy equipment. Mothers and wives complained to Congress, but there wasn't a lot the government could do. It was broke and didn't have enough inspectors to ferret out the fraud. 
So Congress came up with a clever plan. It would provide an incentive for employees to turn in their own companies. It would pay them money. If you're a citizen and you report fraud that's being conducted by a contractor, say, against the government, and the government takes up the case and wins it and wins an award, you get a piece of that award. It was called the False Claims Act, and it was lucrative. The government agreed to split any fine it got 50-50 with the whistleblower. They had big hopes this would finally keep blind horses from being sold to the government. But then the Civil War ended. The law was weakened, mostly forgotten. Until about 100 years later, when the issue of fraud came up again. This time, it was the 1980s, the Reagan administration. Stories started to surface about military spending, $400 hammers, and most famously, a $600 toilet seat. Patrick Burns is with the group Taxpayers Against Fraud. The idea was that we needed to get a handle on fraud and that one way to do that might be with a False Claims Act. Congress dusted off the law and started to offer the reward again. It worked so well in the defense industry, the government started using it to go after drug companies and healthcare corporations. The money helped usher in the golden age of the whistleblower. My name is Ellen Beckley Coons, and I worked for Halifax Health for almost 21 years. Halifax Health is a big hospital in Daytona Beach. Backlid Coons found out it was billing patients for services they hadn't gotten and submitting those claims to Medicare. The fraud was big, hundreds of millions of dollars a year. She tried reporting it to her bosses. They shut her down. So she went to a lawyer, and he told her about this old law. The False Claims Act seemed to be the only tool I had to report this to the government. Now, just reporting fraud doesn't get you the money. You have to prove it. And the case took a long time, five years. And that whole time, Baklid Kuntz was working at Halifax Health. What was that like? That sounds... Lonely. <laughs> Baklid Kuntz says no one at the company would speak to her. When she and one of her coworkers got lunch, they met up really far away from the office. But they were spotted anyway. And she was literally told that if she cared about her job, she had to stay away from me. When it started impacting my friends, it was very difficult. Halifax Health settled with the government in March for $85 million. Baklid Kuntz got around $20 million of that. But she says one thing still bothers her. Her bosses didn't pay the price. They've gotten promotions. They're still there. There's been no punishment on them. And I just didn't think that would happen. This is the big downside of the False Claims Act. It's a civil law, not a criminal law. Companies that get caught have to pay money, but the people involved won't go to jail. Patrick Burns, with Taxpayers Against Fraud, wonders if it really teaches companies a lesson. The problem is, if all you're doing is hitting publicly traded companies financially, you probably haven't hit them where it hurts. When lawmakers designed the False Claims Act during the Civil War, they thought a big fine would stop fraud. In those days, companies were much smaller, and fines could bankrupt you. But now, in the age of corporations, a big fine is paid by the shareholders. Often, no one is held personally responsible. So while the government is pulling in a bunch of money from this law, $5 billion this year alone, no one claims that it's reducing fraud, just helping offset it a little. Stacey, I have a question. Were there whistleblowers involved in some of those bank settlements, those big bank funds? Yeah, yeah, actually almost all of them. And the latest Bank of America settlement, the big $17 billion one, actually involved four False Claims Act cases that totaled a billion dollars. 
Didn't you say that in one story someone was wearing a wire at work? Like oh, a tape yeah, recorder? yeah. That was with Endo Pharmaceuticals, a drug company. And um, in that case, a whistleblower actually wore a wire and found out through that that one of his colleagues had taken a thumb drive with evidence on it and smashed it up and thrown it away in dumpsters all over New York City. You can't make that stuff up. I wish I had snooze. I could have used a bit more sleep. Put on my shoes. These ones are ruining my feet. Eat that apple to the cores. I hurry, hurry. Our show today was produced by Jess Jang. Thanks, Jess. Let us know what you think. You can send us email, planetmoney at npr.org. I'm David Kestenbaum. And I'm Stacey Vanek-Smith. Say thanks for listening. Oh, thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.